Sometimes life is really hard. How do you handle the tough days? This morning we start a new sermon series in the book of James. I ask for you to take the Bible and open it to James chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 to 8 and verse 12. I want to preach in your hearing a sermon that's entitled Faith on trial. Faith on trial. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence, the public reading of God's holy word. James chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Authorship lends credibility. There are some books that we are eager to read simply because of the reputation of the author. And conversely, there are some books on our shelf that we will not touch because we despise and disagree so adamantly with the author. Every uh, author writes with a certain bias or slant or set of convictions. It's important to know who is writing what we are reading. That's true whether we are reading a textbook or a newspaper article or a blog post. It's important to know who the author is. It's also pretty important in studying of the scripture for us to know something about its authorship. The book that we're going to study this fall is written by a man named James. Who is James? In the New Testament, there are three prominent men that bear that name of James. The first one is James, the brother of John. Together they are the sons of Zebedee. They are commonly called the sons of thunder. They got that nickname because one day they asked permission and I dare say power from Jesus so that they may torch a particular Samaritan village that did not welcome Christ. Jesus did not give him permission to do that, but the nickname stuck. Everybody knew them as the sons of thunder. James and John, together with Peter, formed the inner circle of the disciples. 
Peter, James, and John got up close and personal to many of the um, miraculous events that Jesus had in his ministry. There are few people, several people, that believe that that's the James that wrote this book. I, I don't agree with that. The reason I don't buy it is because in Acts chapter 12, we are told that that James was put to death by the sword. He was one of the first martyrs in the early church. The death of that James predates the writing of this New Testament letter. Therefore, I don't think that he is the author of our text. The second prominent man in the New Testament named James is also another disciple of Jesus. He is James, the son of Alphaeus. He's elsewhere called James the Younger. Not a whole lot is known about this James. Not a whole lot is written about this particular man named James. I suppose that he could be the one who authored our text, but it's not very probable. I think the most likely candidate of the individual to write this New Testament letter called James is James, the brother of our Lord. This is James who was not one of the original 12 disciples. This is the James, the little brother of Jesus that grew up in the same household as Christ. This was a large family according to the New Testament. There were at least seven children. It is Mark who tells us there was Jesus and his four brothers and his sisters, which mean there has to be at least two. So it's a family of at least seven individuals. Can you imagine being raised in the shadow of perfection? Can you imagine being raised with Jesus as your big brother? I can conceive that Mother Mary would sometimes ask the question, James, did you clean your room up today? Because Jesus did. James, you got two touchdowns? That's great. Jesus got seven. James, you got a 92 on your math test? Is that the best you can do? Jesus got a hundred. Can you imagine the frustration, the jealousy, the animosity that must have been boiling over some of those siblings as they were raised in the same household as perfection, as they were raised with Jesus side by side? In fact, Mark tells us that his family members did not believe that he was the Christ. On one occasion, in Mark chapter 6, the siblings of Jesus come to take charge of Christ, they said he is out of his mind. He's loony. He's bonkers. He's lost it. He's got a God complex. He thinks he's God in the flesh. And so his brothers thought that he was out of his mind. In John chapter 7, the author specifically tells us that the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him. At the crucifixion of Christ, we are told that Mother Mary is at the foot of the cross, but there is no mention of the siblings of our Savior being there. The brothers and sisters of Jesus did not even attend his funeral. If that happened today, we would say that family is sad and dysfunctional. Not even the brothers and sisters came to the funeral of their big brother Jesus. For the longest time, James was not a believer in the Lord. I wonder when it changed. I think it changed soon after the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul says, after that, Jesus appeared 
to about 500 of the brothers at the same time, many of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and then finally to me as one who was abnormally born. What Paul is saying is that this Jesus appeared to a man named James. And this particular James that Paul is referring to must not be one of the disciples because the very next line of that phrase, the very next phrase of that line says that then Jesus appeared to all the apostles. So I'm convinced that Paul is saying that this James is none other than the little brother of Jesus and Jesus specifically appeared to James. And I think it's in that moment that he went from no faith to faith. I think in that moment when he beheld the resurrected Jesus the Christ, he said, that is my Messiah. You can fool some people some of the time, but you can't fool family. I think this is one of the main reasons Why our faith is fact. If the resurrection of Jesus was a hoax, James would have called it out. If it was a hoax, James would have said it because James is a hard case. James was one who adamantly said, Jesus is not Lord. He is a loon. He is crazy. And then some point after the resurrection of Jesus on that Easter Sunday, Jesus appears to his little brother, James. And James says, yes, I believe this is my brother and my Lord. And James became a radical follower of Christ. In fact, church history tells us that this particular James became a leader in the church. In Acts chapter 1, the believers gathered for prayer. And it's Luke who tells us that the women were there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there and his brothers. I think that James went back to the siblings and said, we got it wrong. Jesus is Christ He realized, he appeared to me. I saw him. It's not a hoax. It's for real. That was our brother. And I know that many of us would say the hardest people to witness to are our own family members. Not for James. James went back home. He went back to his siblings and he told them, this Jesus is Lord. And they too believed in Christ. When we come to a place like Acts chapter 15, church historians call it the Jerusalem Council. It was a pivotal moment in church history where the believers had to decide what are we going to do with this great influx of Gentile believers? Should we make them become Jews before they become Christians? Because most of the early Christians initially came from a Jewish background, including James and Peter and many of the others. And in Acts chapter 15, it is Simon Peter who speaks up and testifies how Gentiles are coming and turning to God. And then it is James, this James, the brother of our Lord, who speaks up and he says to the crowd, listen to me. And just like E.F. Hutton, when James spoke, people listened. Listen to me. It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for those Gentiles who are turning to God. For Simon Peter has already testified that they have come to the knowledge of our Lord the same way we have come to the knowledge of our Lord by the grace of Jesus. Friend, that argument won the day. 
Because of James standing up, because of his influence, because of his argument, because of his reputation, because of what he said, he said, guys, listen to me. And they did. We should not make it hard on the Gentiles. And they didn't. And so we are here today by the grace of God. And we who are Gentiles, we do not have to first become Jews before we can become Christians. Because whether you're Jew or Gentile, the only way you come to Christ is by the grace of our Lord. And all of that was spoken there at the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. And who's the spokesperson but James, little brother of Jesus. James emerged as a tremendous leader in the church. In fact, uh, the apostle Paul, when he writes one of his earliest letters, the book of Galatians, he recounts his conversion experience. He gives his testimony. And he says, I went to Jerusalem and I sat under the authority Of Peter and James. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 9. It's the apostle Paul who says. That James, Peter and John. Those reputed to be pillars in the church. Extended the right hand of fellowship to me and to Barnabas. Think about what he just said. He said James was leading the list. James Peter and John, those who have the reputation of being pillars, that image of stability and strength and steadiness and the ones who are immovable. This James, who is a pillar of the church, this James extended a hand of fellowship to me and to Barnabas, according to the Apostle Paul. And church history reveals that this James became the pastor of the early church in Jerusalem. For argument's sake, we could call it First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. And for 25 years, James was its pastor. For a better part of a quarter of a century, James gave steady, strong leadership and teaching to the church in Jerusalem while the other disciples were going all over the world planting churches. It was James, the brother of our Lord, who stayed there in Jerusalem and ministered to the people of God. James had a reputation of being so strong, so even-handed, that he was commonly called James the Just. He was also comically called Camel Knees because his knees were so callous because of excessive prayer. They said this was a man who prayed so much that his knees enlarged and they calloused. They looked like camel knees. And so in a comical way, they would say, hey, here comes old camel knees because he prays all the stinking time. This is James. About 48 to 50 AD, James wrote this letter. James also became a martyr for the faith. He was executed Somewhere around 66 AD. The story goes that he was pushed off of the temple. The fall didn't kill him. And so then they stoned him the rest of the way. Why did they stone James? Because they couldn't shut him up. Why did they stone James? Because he was so adamant that Jesus is Lord. He was passionate in his faith. He was practical in his teaching. And he said, my big brother is not only my brother, but he is my savior. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And I will die for him for he died for me. This is the James who authored this letter. He begins just by calling himself James, a servant 
of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I suppose that James could have boasted and bragged about being raised in the same family as Jesus. He could have written a book entitled Memoirs with the Messiah. He could have gone on a a public circuit speaking tour and bagged a bunch of money and retired early and gone to the beach. But he didn't do any of that. He identified himself as a servant. That word means slave. In so many words, what he's saying is Jesus owns me. I belong to God. I belong to Christ. This Jesus who was my earthly big brother, he is my Lord. He is my master. He is my savior. James writes to believers that are scattered all over the globe because of persecution. He issues the briefest of greetings. It's one word. Greetings. And then he launches into the body of the text. And he starts on a hard day. He starts with a difficult scenario. He starts when things are tough. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Friend, can I tell you, there is not a more bizarre verse in all the Bible than that one. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. How do you consider it pure joy when you are ridiculed by your friends because of your faith in Christ? How do you consider it pure joy when you are overlooked for the promotion because your boss does not share or appreciate your conviction that you're not gonna work on Sunday and you're gonna come and bring the family to church? How do you consider it pure joy when your spouse of 32 years is told that she has an operable brain cancer? How do you consider it pure joy when your supervisor calls you in and after you've given the company 22 years, he says your services are no longer needed. Pack up your office and you can go. How do you consider it pure joy when your soon-to-be ex-wife takes you to the cleaners called divorce court? How do you consider it pure joy when you get cut from the basketball team How do you consider it pure joy when you get that tragic news that your daughter has been in a car wreck, leaving her paralyzed from the neck down? How do you consider it pure joy when you get accused of a crime you did not commit? How do you consider it pure joy when you and your spouse desperately want to parent a child, but that's the one thing that seems to elude you in your marriage? How do you consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds? This has to be one of the most bizarre verses in all the Bible. For starters, I want to tell you that James is not saying fake it till you make it. James is not saying just slap on a disingenuous smile and go about your business, grin and bear it. And he's certainly not saying that when somebody in church comes up and asks you, how you doing? Don't just sit there and go, fine, fine. Everything's wonderful. Fine, good. How are you? Bless you, brother. Bless you, sister. James is not saying just to slap on a fake smile and somehow pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just say, I've got joy. No, he's not saying that at all. For James, joy is, is not found in the situation. For James, joy is not even found in your ability to overcome the situation. For James, joy is a fundamental expression of your faith in Christ. 
Let me say that again. That joy is a fundamental expression of your faith in Christ. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Our joy is in Jesus. Nehemiah reminds us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. The psalmist says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. David, after his escapade with Bathsheba, prayed unto the Lord, restore the joy of your salvation. The angel said to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Our joy is not in our scenario. Our joy is in our Savior. For we believe that Christ is bigger than our crisis. That the Messiah is more massive than our mess. We believe that Jesus is greater and he is the one who gives an ever springing well of joy. Joy is a fundamental expression of of our faith in Jesus. So our joy is not in cancer. Our joy is in the Jesus who's bigger than cancer. Our joy is not in the death of a loved one. Our joy is in the Jesus who's bigger than the death of a loved one. Our joy is not in unemployment. Our joy is in the Jesus who is bigger than our unemployment. So when James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, he is not telling you just to fake it until you make it. What he's telling you is that your sole source of joy is Jesus. And that joy is the most fundamental expression of our faith in Christ. He says, consider it pure joy. Not if you face trials of many kinds, but when you face trials of many kinds. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. It's not a question of, of if you will face trial or tragedy or trouble. It's a question of when you face trials and tragedy and trouble. When you face sickness and sadness and setback. When you suffer, when you feel the pain of persecution. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Because our joy is not in the situation, we can say as Christians that some scenarios just flat out stink. It is okay for us to say, I hate cancer. It is perfectly fine for you to say, I hate that my spouse walked out on me. It is perfectly fine for you to say, I hate that my son died in that car wreck. I hate that I no longer employed with that company that I love so much. It's okay for us to say we hate certain scenarios because our joy is not found in that scenario. When trial comes, when tragedy comes, when when trouble comes knocking on your door, I do not want you to misinterpret it. Do not think that the trials of life mean that God has abandoned you or he's walked out on you or he's ignoring you or he's punishing you. And also don't want you to misinterpret it by thinking That somehow God has to answer all my questions about this particular trial. Or somehow he's going to have to make it alleviate soon. Or or somehow he's going to have to do something uh, that, that I want him to do. I do not want you to misinterpret the trial. We face trials of many kinds, don't we? 
Sometimes the trials are financial. Sometimes they're vocational. Sometimes they're marital. Sometimes they're medical. Sometimes they're parental. Sometimes we just face trials and trouble in our everyday relationships. Sometimes we face tragedy in the marketplace. Sometimes we face trouble even in the church. And friend, I don't want you to misinterpret the tragedy. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know, verse 3 and 4, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And when perseverance has done its work, it leads to your maturity. How can you consider tragedy joy? I'll tell you how. Because you know and you believe that God is up to something. That God is going to use that tragedy to help you persevere to the end. And he's going to use that to enable you to mature in the faith. God is going to help you persevere. He's going to use that tragedy, that difficulty, that trial of various kinds. He's going to, he's going to use those tragedies to help you along the way. Some of us would agree that these trials, they come in bunches, don't they? We think we've batten down the hatches to fix this issue and then up pops these two or three other problems and we think to ourselves what is going on what have I done wrong why does God have a vendetta against me and friend it's not that God is punishing you it is not that God is abandoning you God is using that to galvanize you into the person that he wants you to be he's using that trouble to help you persevere Another word for persevere is steadfastness. The word steadfast is a military term. It means to stand your post. It means to be on guard. It means to be strong. It means to be immovable. Can I just say it, it, it lends itself to mean that you and I are supposed to be pillars? The word is to be strong and immovable because we realize that God is using everything at his disposal to help us be steadfast, to help us persevere to the very end. In his book entitled On the Anvil, it is Max Lucado who says, anvil time should not be avoided. A dull axe, a bent screwdriver needs attention. And so do we. A good blacksmith knows how to reshape his tools. And so does God. So if God puts you on his anvil, Max Lucado says, be thankful because he regards you worthy of reshaping. Sometimes you and I need to be reshaped. Sometimes you and I need something to happen to us so that we can endure this storm in our 30s so we can handle the hurricane in our 60s. And God knows the end line as soon as he knows the beginning, starting point. And so God uses all things to help fashion us into the men and women that he wants us to be. God can use anything to galvanize your faith so that you will end well and you will persevere to the very last. You remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28? That God works all things for his good according to his good pleasure to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
God uses all things. God works all things to his good. All things must include pleasant things and painful things. It must include good things and gross things. It has to include terrific things and terrible things. God uses all things so that you will persevere and so that you will be mature in the faith. Let me ask you about a show of hands. How many of you want to be like Jesus? Just raise your hand. Okay, very good. Now you can put your hands down. Let me ask you a second question. Uh, How many of you want to experience trials? Raise your hand. Not nearly as many, but the reality is that's one of the same question. Because if you're gonna be like Jesus, you will experience trials. Because Jesus endured enormous suffering while he walked this sod. Jesus endured enormous trials. Remember what Dr. Luke said? Luke said in chapter two that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. When you and I come to verse five of our passage, we find the most quoted verse in my pastoral ministry. If anyone lacks wisdom, all he has to do is ask and God will give it freely. I cannot tell you how many times I claim that verse, how many times I pray that verse, how many times I repeat that verse. Because as pastor, there are many times I do not know what I'm doing. You say, that's a news flash. We already knew that, pastor. (laughs) But, but, But you realize that there are a lot of times, a lot of days, a lot of scenarios, a lot of situations that come at me. And I say, I don't know what to do. If anyone lacks wisdom, all he has to do is ask and God will give it freely. Let me ask you this. Um, Anybody in the house need help? Anybody in the house uh, need guidance? Anybody here who just needs uh, something to change, uh, needs some advice about something, needs some guidance about something? Anybody have problems in their marriage or problems in their parenting or problems with mom and dad or problems in the workplace? Anybody just needs some advice about what to do or how to handle this situation or that scenario? If there's anybody who needs help, James just says, ask God. It's not that you need self-help, you need savior help. Just ask God. And if anyone lacks wisdom, all he has to do is ask and God will give it freely. God's not holding out on you. God says, I want you to come to me and ask and I will give you the wisdom and discernment needed to handle the scenario and the situation. All you have to do is ask. There is one caveat though. You've got to ask in faith. You've got to ask believing that Jesus can handle it. You've got to ask believing that Jesus knows best. You've got to ask believing that Jesus is the wellspring of wisdom. You've got to ask in faith. If you ask in doubt, James says, you're like a wave that's tossed about. You're like a person that's unstable. You're a double-minded individual and a double-minded individual is unstable in everything that he or she does. Which ironically, unstable is the opposite of steadfast. Earlier, James said that these trials the Lord permits because he's promoting your steadfastness. And if you go to him in unbelief, if you go to him in doubt, the end result's not steadfastness, it's unstableness. You're like a person on the sea who never has his sea legs, always wobbling around, always waffling, waffling back and forth, uh, thinking this way, thinking that way, doing this, doing that, having no structure in your life. So James says, if you need help, ask God. You know, there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge fills the mind. Wisdom guides the life. Knowledge tells us 
what to believe. Wisdom tells us how to behave. Knowledge leads to information. Wisdom leads to transformation. Our world is full of knowledge. Our world is scarce of wisdom. So how do you get this wisdom? Well, James says, ask God. He'll give it freely. So you seek his wisdom in his word. You seek his wisdom in prayer as you talk to him. You seek his wisdom as you hear that still small voice of the Holy Spirit that resides in every single believer. Sometimes you may seek his wisdom by uh, seeking the counsel of other godly men and women, maybe individuals that are just a few years ahead of you on life's journey. Maybe they've been where you are. They came through what you're currently going through and you just seek their guidance, their godly wisdom. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said a, a person who has a Bible that's falling apart probably has a life that's not. A person who has a Bible that's falling apart probably has a life that's not because that person knows the value of seeking God's wisdom in God and through the power of his word. Where did James learn all of this? Where where did he come up with the idea To consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kind because you know that the testing of your faith develops steadfast perseverance and maturity. And if you're lacking wisdom and needing help as you navigate life, just ask God. He'll give it to you freely. But when you go to him, don't doubt. Ask him in faith. And he will make you steady. Where, where, where would James get this? Can I say that he saw it lived out in big brother Jesus? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was kneeling in the garden of Gethsemane. He entered that garden with a lot of questions on his mind. He was so stressed out, he was sweating drops of blood falling to the ground. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus prayed this not once or twice, but three times. He was furrowing faithfulness into his very spirit. And when Jesus stood up after praying in the garden of Gethsemane, he walked out determined and devoted under the obedience of God. And Jesus, on that night, endured a barrage of interrogations and mock trials. He was beaten to a pulp. He was stripped. He carried a crossbeam on his back. He stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem. He barely looked human, let alone alive. They took him up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. And there they stretched him across a tree. They nailed him to that tree. They raised him into the air. And Jesus spoke a few words. Eventually, he he said, it is finished. He bowed his head. He gave up his ghost. They took his dead body off the cross, placed it into the borrowed tomb. And on the third day, Jesus burst forth from that tomb. On the third day, this dead body began to breathe again. On the third day, Jesus got up. He crushed the devil and he crushed sin and hell and he walked out victorious from the grave. The writer of the Hebrew letter says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. 
What the author of the Hebrew letter is saying is echoed in the book of James that we look to our big brother Jesus and Jesus is our example in all things. Jesus endured suffering in order for the joy of the crown. Jesus endured so we might endure. Jesus died so that we might live. Jesus was raised to the dead from the dead so that we may have life eternal. Jesus went into heaven to prepare a place for us and when he's ready, he will come back to receive us unto himself. James is just simply telling us, look to Jesus. He's our big brother. He's our savior. Amen. The hymn writer would also echo this. Have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches over his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. So have faith in God. Have faith in God. At the very end of our passage, James creates his own beatitude. Blessed is the man or woman who perseveres under trial. Because when he or she has stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life. Friend, this morning I want you to consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. I know it sounds bizarre, crazy in fact, but you consider it pure joy because you know that God is up to something. He's using the trial to help you persevere, to steady your life and to mature your faith. And if you have any questions about it, if you need some godly advice, just ask God for wisdom and he'll give it. But when you go, go to him in faith. Friend, what I'm trying to tell you is simply this. Don't quit. Christian, don't give up. Beloved, don't give in. Why? Because God is not through with you. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation to the saints that are listening to my voice who are struggling in trials and trouble of various kinds. Oh, Father, help us today to consider it pure joy because we know you're up to something. Father, for those who are listening to my voice and they've never trusted Jesus as Savior, I pray that today is the day that they call out acknowledging that big brother Jesus is the savior of the universe. For those looking for a church home, I pray that today is the day they solidify where you want them to be planted here in this faith family. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.